When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. And you're on right now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo Five O Radio Network, bringing you the news behind the news, the story behind the story. Here to convince you that reality is usually scoffed at, and conventional wisdom is often just an illusion. We're live on iHeartRadio, on demand on iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, and Spotify. And you can follow me on Twitter at right now, Jim Dawes. love to hear from listeners you can shoot me an email the address is right now jim dawes at gmail.com or you can call the vent line and get something off your chest at 772-245-0750 that's 772-245-0750 what a week what a week Oh, my God, this news cycle moves so fast you can't keep up. The news just comes at you uh, like a hurricane. Most of it's bad news, but it doesn't take too much effort to scratch the surface and and find the good news. It all seems negative because, uh, you know, that's what the media traffic is in. But there's there's a lot of good news out there. We're going to bring it all to you on today's show. And then next week. As I mentioned yesterday, I'm going to hit the road, go visit family in uh, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, and uh, take a bit of a road trip. It's going to be interesting to see the uh, the contrast with the way uh, different states are handling this this uptick, this spike in coronavirus cases. It's it's the same stuff that they uh, they pulled on us the last time, and it, you know I, I'm thoroughly convinced all of this is coordinated. But I'll be out next week, and uh, this show will be hosted Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday by the great Dominic Izzo, and I hope he doesn't uh, <laughs> offend too many of my audience. If uh, if you haven't listened to Izzo's show, The Rants of Izzo in the Evening, uh, you're in for a treat. Um, but know that uh, Izzo is, uh, as his show would suggest, The Rants of Izzo. And then Wednesday, it'll be hosted by Jeremy Leahy, and that's always a good time. So I got to start today's show by uh, doing a bit of a mea culpa. It turns out that that that, uh, knot that was in Bubba Wallace's garage was, in fact, a noose. They released a photograph of it yesterday before it had been cut down. And uh, as Bubba Wallace said, it was a straight-up noose. I mean, a noose is a, a knot. It's a noose knot. Uh, that has, uh, you know, uh, six or eight or more turns uh, in the in the uh, slip portion of the knot. And this one had uh, had eight eight turns on the knot. It's, you know, also a knot that's used for uh, fishing and uh, and um, nautical um, uses. But um, 
I don't think this same knot, as I had said before, was in all of the other garages. Somebody had fashioned a knot that is commonly used as a hangman's noose. So, uh, you know, the only reservations I have admitting I'm wrong is I saw the photographs that were taking, uh, taken, um, from a distance and, uh, the photograph that was taken from a distance didn't look a whole lot like that photograph that NASCAR released yesterday. And, uh, you know, this has been a controversy all along. I, I, I'm not sure why NASCAR took so long to bring this forward. But in any case, this, uh, you know, that we've got photographs of this same knot that was uh, in the garage over a year ago. And uh, it didn't it didn't cause any controversy as long as it's been hanging there. We don't know how long, but at least a year. So uh, it wasn't necessary that this, you know, be made into a national scandal. I think uh, NASCAR and Bubba Watson wanted to. Uh, piggyback on the the unrest in the street to uh, to get some uh, social justice warrior attention and maybe get some uh, millions of dollars that the corporations are throwing at the uh, BLM group. I'm, I have no doubt that that's what Bobby Wallace had in mind when he started you know running around wearing that shirt. I can't breathe on a, uh, on a NASCAR track. But uh, I, I have made my mistake for the year now, and uh, and I have to own up to it. I'll try to make it through the rest of the year without any more. So Tucker Carlson was on last night. He has become sort of the ideological center of the um, America First uh, Trump movement, the MAGA movement. And I got to admit, Tucker went kind of wobbly on last night's show. Um, He has been uh, really hardcore uh, up till now and uh, not, you know, allowed himself to be uh, discouraged or, um, dissuaded. But last night, uh, he, he, he started out the monologue saying something kind of obvious. The control of the radicals who control Joe Biden, and they will remake the country. Let me start that clip over again, because I skipped uh, an important part of it. Here we go. Loud on the right. But the fact is that president Trump could well lose this election. In fact, unless fundamental facts change soon, it could be tough for him to be reelected. If the president does lose, that would mean that just a few months from now, Joe Biden would become the president. The United States. So, so he said a couple of really obvious things so far. He could lose, and if he does lose, it'll be Joe Biden as president. His government would fall under the control of the radicals who control Joe Biden, and they will remake the country. We know that. Now, we're fully aware that virtually nobody watching this show tonight wants to hear that. But it's true. And key people around the president know that it's true. They've seen the numbers. They're concerned. At some point in the future, historians will marvel at the fact that the president lost ground during a pandemic and then during mass riots. Well, he goes on and on, wringing his hands and, uh, you know, uh, uh, being discouraged. He was talking directly to the president, uh, trying to uh, stir him into response of these riots that are going on in the streets. But, uh, you know, we really, uh, I think, as I said, that Tucker is the ideological leader of the MAGA movement uh, now, and he's got the biggest audience on cable news who tune in every night for him to uh, to be encouraged and, uh, and to hear uh, his analysis. So, you know, I don't think it served a big purpose to tell people that Trump could lose. We know that, uh, and that Biden would be president if he does lose and that Biden will be led around by the nose by radical leftists. 
I guess if you have to do a 30 minute monologue every week, you, uh, you know, you're bound to, uh, to get, uh, somewhat discouraged occasionally, but, um, now going into the weekend all over uh, social media, you see people uh, wringing their hands because Tucker Carlson has sort of uh, bummed them out last night. Maybe he'll come up with a more inspiring message today. And all of this, uh, this talk about Trump losing is of course, in response to these polls that have come forward. I don't know at what point people will, uh, remember their history from all the way back in 2016 when, uh, 185 of 200 national polls showed that Donald Trump was going to lose the election. He had uh, uh, Hillary Clinton had a 95% chance of winning. I sort of subscribe to the, uh, the same view of these polls that uh, Democrat Debbie Dingell of Michigan subscribes to. Well, first of all, I didn't believe that poll. The pollster who did that poll, who said we're 16 points up, said on October 6, 2016, that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag in October 26, 2016, said there was no way she could lose. Uh, and subsequent to that, there have been two polls, one showing Joe Biden up two points and one showing him one point up. I think it's competitive in Michigan. I think it's five months still until November. We don't know what the events are that could take place, but I don't want anyone to let polls that aren't real or don't really reflect how people think, suppress vote, or tell people that their vote doesn't matter, or they shouldn't care about the future of this country. I think this is a competitive race. Yes, there are a lot of polls right now, and there are a lot of things I'm unhappy about with happening to this country. But people need to be engaged to understand their vote matters. Yeah, I I wonder, you know, if it uh, would. I don't think there's going to be any vote suppression this time. I think that everybody is so engaged, both the radical left, who, who... who makes up a near majority of our country now and traditional Americans that are sitting at home watching this, uh, unrest, this violence, this, these riots in the street are looking for an opportunity to, uh, to strike back. And I think they're going to do that on, in big numbers on November 3rd. And Tucker made some good points that, uh, the president keeps talking about what needs to happen and talking about what he's going to do and has been damn short, at least until this point of actually taking action. Uh, most certainly, uh, that the president should have invoked the insurrection act, the same one that George, uh, I think that's what's George H W Bush. No, it was George W Bush, uh, invoked in response to the riots in Los Angeles and that, uh, uh, LBJ and Nixon and uh, Truman and Eisenhower have all invoked. He should have most certainly uh, uh, sent federal troops to deal. Um, the first thing he should have done was put down the riots, and then he should have protected these monuments that are being destroyed. Trump had a, uh, a town hall meeting on Hannity last night. Uh, you know, he's he's doing everything he can to get his message out because uh, the Democrats scream bloody murder if he tries to have a rally. And so he went up to Michigan uh, with uh, Sean Hannity. And at one point during uh, that speech or that town hall, he said this, and I think he's exactly right. The toughest nation to deal with are the Democrats in the USA. So, so. The Democrats in the USA are much tougher to deal with than any of these people that we deal with. They're far more unreasonable, and actually they're a little crazy. A lot crazy. The toughest nation. 
Yeah, I've said that a long time. Uh, you know, the, the greatest threat to this country is not um, Russia or even China. The greatest threat to this country is the Democrat Party, who has become totally unmoored from our nation's history or its, uh, its you know, constitution, and now have adopted this uh, Marxist ideology that, uh, that they want to um, entrench themselves in power with. You know, the, uh, one of the documents uh, that the, the Black Lives Matter movement uses is this 1619 Project, a series that came out of the New York Times. And the effort was led by a woman named Nicole Hannah-Jones. You've probably seen her on TV. She's this black woman with uh, uh, red dyed hair, and uh, she's always running around calling uh, white people racist. Well, uh, it's recently uh, been revealed that uh, when she was a sophomore at Notre Dame University, she wrote a letter to the student newspaper that, I mean, even by Black Lives Matter standards, is, uh, is just so overtly racist. She compares uh, Christopher Columbus with Adolf Hitler. She says uh, white people are devils and bloodsuckers. says Africans have been uh, had been to America long before Christopher Columbus or any Europeans. She advanced this uh, this uh, black centric theory. Um, it, it comes from uh, from Louis Farrakhan and the uh, black um, black Muslim uh, culture that uh, Africans had come to North America and uh, instructed the Native Americans on how to build pyramids and and in great monuments. And she says, it was not enough for whites to come to the Americas and learn and look upon the native. uh, They look upon the native people as inferior and people to be annihilated. Their lasting monument was the destruction of two races. So at each and every turn, uh, when we find out these people actually uh, speaking, uh, they reveal their own racism while at the same time accusing everybody else of being racist. We got to run out to a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You hear the headlines. You know health insurance is a real mess right now. Premiums have skyrocketed, and in most cases, you're stuck with your plan until open enrollment. But there's a government rule that allows you to qualify for lower health insurance rates if your life has changed. That means if you've changed jobs, if you're having a child, if you're getting married, if you're getting divorced, even if you run a small business or you're self-employed, this law may qualify you to get lower health insurance rates. Call the health insurance hotline today learn how this 10-minute call can help you get lower health insurance rates this is a free service to help consumers learn the laws to help them qualify for lower health insurance rates so call right now to learn more 800-605-1679 800-605-1679 that's 800-605-1679 paid for by go health so Joe Biden ventured out of his basement yesterday and traveled to uh, Pennsylvania, which is going to be a critical swing state in this election. 
the, the state of his birth, he always likes to remind you that he was from Scranton, PA. Uh, but he left that uh, to go represent the uh, predatory credit card companies in Delaware in the U.S. Senate. But uh, he came out and uh, he had this uh, sparsely attended event. Actually, more Trump supporters showed up to uh, to uh, wave signs supporting Trump than did uh, attendees to this Joe Biden rally. I don't even know if it's a rally. He had uh, one of these uh, sparsely attended events where he had a, a sprinkling of people in there. He actually banned local media from attending uh, and only allowed his mouthpieces in the uh, national media to attend. One of the local TV stations, uh, you know, questioned that and they said, well, it was, you know, because they they didn't have enough room. It turned out that none of the national media uh, had had showed up by that point. But uh, at some at one point uh, during this this event that Joe Biden called to discuss the uh, Obamacare, he said this. Unnecessarily, now we have over 120 million dead from COVID. Uh, <laughs> I want to play it for you again. It went by fast. Unnecessarily, now we have over 120 million dead from COVID. 120 million dead from COVID, he says. I guess we have to add that to the 150 million that were uh, killed by gun violence that he uh, that he pointed out at one of the Democrat debates. Uh, so that's uh, it's 270 million people that have either been killed in the United States by uh, the Wuhan virus or by gun violence, according to Joe Biden. <laughs> that's uh, that's about three fifths of the population. <laughs> you know, if, if Donald Trump had said something that incoherent, uh, it would be you know, covered on the news for days. This is why they're keeping him in the basement, you know, and trying to protect him from uh, any, anybody, but the most um, sympathetic uh, press coverage. One of the things that Tucker was talking about is the president's going to have to get tough and uh, he needs to start having some of these perp walks. I was actually saying that before Tucker was, You've got these uh, these people engaged in uh, felonies that are punishable by up to 10 years in prison. You got them on videotape. This should not be hard for Bill Barr to go out and grab some people and make examples of them. And uh, I think I've got a clip here of uh, Bill Barr promising to do just that. If I can find it, uh, he's saying, saying that he's got... Uh, He's got 500 prosecutions going on. He was appearing uh, with the uh, uh, on the uh, Michael Knowles show, and uh, as riot. Oh, here we go. We are we are seeing. Uh strong evidence of, of coordination in many of these violent uh, episodes. Uh, fundamentally, what you have here is you have demonstrators. Some of them go there with the intent of demonstrating, but you have a group of provocateurs and agitators, sometimes a significant group, that try to convert those into violent activity. And uh, they seem to be very well coordinated when they show up. Uh, a number of them are associated with the movement called Antifa, but they go by various names. 
names, uh, but frequently anarchistic. They want to tear down the country. Uh, the They're different than many uh, traditional groups uh, and, and frequently. Yeah, so he's pointing out Antifa is behind this. It's a leaderless um, cells of ideologically aligned radicals. They're designed to try to be, um, you know, to try to avoid arrest. But as I say, we got them on videotape. What more do you need? But this issue of censorship is is very troubling because our country was based. He's talking here about the censorship that uh, has uh, got Facebook and Twitter cracking down on the president and his supporters. Facebook is under a, a huge Assault right now. Uh, uh, big corporations are pulling their advertising on Facebook unless they agree to not run President Trump's ads. And the framers, as you know, believed in that the thing that would ultimately keep us free and keep a majority from oppressing a minority is a lot of diversity of voices out there in a robust marketplace. But these behemoths have gotten a vast, you know, strong control over uh, the expression of views and then public forum here in the United States. And they got there. And I've said this is the biggest bait and switch in history. They got there by saying, hey, we're going to be open to all views. Uh, you know, come join us. Us because then you can have your view. So they built up this powerful network. Very, they built up millions and millions of listeners. There's a, a migration uh, going on on Twitter to this new platform called Parler, P A R L E R. And uh, this is critically important that uh, the conservatives have some place to go uh, when they uh, are uh, kicked off Twitter and uh, and muzzled. The problem is uh, Parler isn't completely developed yet, and most of what it is is allowing you to uh, view and get um, uh, parlays, they call them. They're not tweets, they're parlays. Uh, Get your parlays from uh, uh, big influencers that are on the platform, and that includes uh, the president and Don Jr. and uh, a lot of these um, conservative and right-wing uh, sources, uh, but it's very hard to uh, to get engagement. I've been on there for a few days now. I recommend that you uh, establish an account over there as well. But already, uh, big tech is striking back against Parler. Uh, Apple is threatening to kick Parler off of its app store because uh, they say that you know there's they hate speech. It's hateful, hateful, hate speech. The problem is nothing that they. Uh, cited as hate speech is not easily discoverable on Facebook and Twitter as well. So, you know, it's very uh, selective outrage over this hate speech. They, they're deploying the same model that they used against Gab. They found, you know, a, a radical over there that was responsible for a mass shooting. And they said, well, Gab is, uh, you know, has, has to be taken down completely ignoring, of course, the fact that Facebook had been used by uh, by Islamic terrorists and uh, mass shooters, and so had Twitter. It's a selective enforcement. It's one of the uh, the left's favorite tactics that they like to use. But if Bill Barr is really interested in arresting somebody, I think uh, I think he's got a prime candidate. Uh, this guy is a Black Lives Matter leader for Greater New York, who went on with Martha McCallum the other night and said this. If this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down this system and replace it. 
if this country doesn't give us what we want, we will burn down this system and replace it. That's commonly known in the law as a terroristic threat, a threat of terrorism. There are laws against that kind of speech. Uh, it's called insurrection and sedition. So it wouldn't be too much uh, for Bill Barr to, uh, to show up with some federal marshals at this guy's house and take him into custody and, and, uh, and charge him. The, uh, the Black Lives Matter went on, leader went on to say this. Uh, there have been eight cops fired across the country. You remember they were telling us that there was due process. That's why the cop that choked Eric Gardner to death had kept his job and make, get, received raises for five years. Anytime a cop hurt a woman, hurt a child, hurt yeah, pregnant people, yeah. hurt our elders, yeah. there was always a call for due process. You must wait. You must wait. But the moment people start destroying property, now cops can be fired automatically. What? What? What is this country uh, rewarding? Well, I can tell you what they're rewarding. At least the Democrat mayors of these big cities where these riots are happening, they're awarding violence. And this is a prime opportunity to arrest somebody that's actually violating federal law. we got to run out to a break. Actually, in the second half of this show, I'm probably going to pick a uh, interview and play it because i got a lot to do to get ready to get on the road. And I will talk to y'all. Week after next, on Right Now with Jim Dawes. It's been 25 years since apartheid ended and Nelson Mandela's African National Congress came to power in South Africa. The ANC has held on to power ever since, and the nation has been racked by soaring crime, poverty, and government corruption. Lately, there's been a rise of a party called the Economic Freedom Fighters, led by a radical Marxist named Julius Malema. The EFF has advocated confiscating white farmers' land and made a campaign theme of slaughtering the white minority. Not surprisingly, this has spawned an epidemic of brutal murders of white farmers, including women and children. Our guest is Ernst Rotes, author of Kill the Boar, Government Complicity in South Africa's Brutal Farm Murders, which you can find on Amazon. Rotes is a constitutional lawyer and civil rights activist, and he joins us right now. Ernst Rotes, thank you for this important book, and thank you for speaking out on this topic. Thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to speak to you, and thank you for, for giving me this opportunity to, to talk to your listeners about, about what's happening in South Africa. So how many whites are left in South Africa, and how many have fled? Well, the, the, the numbers are – there's a bit of uncertainty regarding the numbers, but there has been studies which have found that about half a million have left the country uh, in, in, in the last two decades or so. Um, the, the, in terms of uh, white people, the uh, white people remain a fairly small minority. South Africa has about 56 million people, of which about 80% are uh, black people, uh, black Africans. And, uh, the white minorities constitute about uh, 3 to 4 million people in South Africa. It's, it's roughly about 8% of, of the population. And how many of that uh, 8% are the uh, legacy settlers, Afrikaners, uh, working, still working the land, do, yeah. you, do you figure? 
Ja, så so, so, we use, use the term Afrikaners, although the word Boer is actually more prominently used internationally. Um, uh, in terms of the Afrikaners or the Boers in South Africa, they are about, of which I am one, we, there, are, there are about 2.7 million of us uh, in South Africa. And um, interesting, the word Boer is, is derived from a word which actually means farmers, because the, the, the ethnic community or the cultural community known as the Afrikaners or the Boers are so closely related or linked to, to the activity of farming that they've actually been named after the, the occupation to, to frame it as such. Um, and this is also particularly relevant when we're talking about the violence that we see on, on South Africa's farms and the targeting of minorities in South Africa by the government and by but other more radical parties, such as the economic freedom fighters, whom you've mentioned in your introduction. You know, I remember back in the 80s uh, when the divestiture movement was going on and the pressure was on F.W. de Klerk to uh, end apartheid and free Nelson Mandela. And uh, the concern of a lot of people was Nelson Mandela was, um, you know, a, a communist and um it was predicted that uh you know at some point uh communism would uh, would find a foothold in south africa i'm surprised that it's taken 25 years but with the rise of um this uh julius malima and i, I want to play a clip for the listeners just to give them a taste of what um, what kind of politician but he actually sits in the south african parliament uh, and this is yeah. just a short clip of Malima at one of his campaign rallies. Now, that is just absolutely chilling incitement to, to really genocide. And it's just amazing that the world has turned a blind eye to this, largely turned a blind eye to this. I was, I was telling Ernst in, uh, when we were talking before, the, the blackout of the mainstream media over here is almost complete. Just give us a, some broad outlines of the political situation over there and uh, the likelihood that Julius Malema uh, could be be elected president of South Africa. Mm. So maybe just to start with a clip that you played, in case the listeners couldn't couldn't hear properly, um, it was a political rally, and he was chanting. It's not a you could hear clearly. It's not really a song or a chant, a political chant. So he was chanting, uh, "Shoot to kill, kill a man," and then um, he was singing the song. He, he changed the words. There's a well-known song in South Africa called "Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer." which is often sung at, at political gatherings, and the song has been declared to be hate speech. And so what Malema has done is he, he sort of made a mockery of the whole thing, and now he keeps singing the song, uh, but he, he changed the words to kiss the boer, kiss the farmer. But of course we all know, while, while he's doing this, he's making hand gestures and he's shooting people. And um, then towards the end, he was, he was, making, a, he was making a sound... Um, going which is to imitate the sound of a machine gun of, you know, shooting people. So Julius Malema was actually the, pre- the youth president, the president of the youth league of the ruling party. He was expelled from the ruling party, not for being racist, 
but for publicly criticizing the president. He then went on to establish his own political party, which is more radical and more aggressively uh, Marxist than, than the ANC, which is also a Marxist uh, movement. And he he currently enjoys about just probably about 10% support in South Africa. But the interesting thing about the dynamics in South African politics is that Julius Malema is, uh, and his party is sort of the tag, the tail wagging the dog in the sense that they are a fairly small party by comparison to the leading party, but they are the ones calling the shots. They are the ones, they, for example, are the ones who, who tabled this motion that private property has to be confiscated by the state without compensation. And then the ruling party supported him in doing this. So I think it's not unfeasible or unrealistic to expect that in the future there might be some negotiation process where Julius Malema will probably demand uh, for, for the two parties to, to, to join again, to meld together, and then he would probably demand something that he has to be made deputy president or or some cabinet, senior cabinet minister position or something like that. It's, it's not an unrealistic um, expectation for something to happen in South Africa in the future. I watched a clip uh, from the deliberations in Parliament about uh, the land confiscation. They call it expropriation without compensation. And Malema was absolutely um, bullying the majority party into compliance with this demand and threatening them, um, alluding to uh, you know terrible things happening to them if they stood in the way of his uh, his radical Marxist party. So. Tell us how bad this uh, this problem is. How many how many farmers have been murdered? Are they obviously political, or is this just in, driven by racial incitement by uh, Julius Malema and his ilk? Well, um, the problem with the whole topic of farm murders or farmers being killed is that it's it's quite a complicated phenomenon, so it's hard to generalize. Um, I can tell you without a doubt that some of these murders happen due to political reasons, and I can say that with certainty because some of the murderers have stated that um, after murdering a farmer, they were so intestinally that they did so because they were influenced, for example, by the son killed the work of a farmer, or they are a member of some political movement, and that's why they killed this person. Of course, there are cases where it's, let's call it robbery gone wrong, where a person tries to rob steal from a farm, and then something happens, and eventually someone gets killed. That also happens. Uh, but if we talk about the numbers, and my approach in writing the book was to stick to the to, to the conservative numbers. In other words, not to give estimates of how many people have been killed, but to give the at least amount. So we, we have a list of the victims of these attacks. where We keep track of the cases that we could verify. And the names on that list is, those are the names that we could verify. And then on that list, we have about 2,000 names of people who have been murdered during these attacks uh, in South Africa since the year 1990. Um, so it's about 2,000 people, and it's something that's not really spoken about uh, internationally. Well, I've seen some of the photographs of these um, uh, brutal crime scenes, and um, I can't remember the uh, criminologist's term, but the, these are murders of, um, of uh, vengeance and hatred. Uh, they're not simply mm-hmm. to... To kill, but um, there's actually been torture taking place and uh, mutilation of the bodies, including women and even uh, little babies. Um, yeah. 
and it it seems to be all part of uh you know a general atmosphere that's being uh, whipped up in the population to uh to resent and hate uh the uh the boars uh because uh you know they're working the land but um and, and Malima's uh, broad campaign theme is that uh, the Afrikaans stole uh, that land from the blacks. But my understanding of history, and correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, South Africa was largely undeveloped when uh, when the Dutch arrived uh, in South Africa, and uh, most of the black population came there uh, because of uh, you know the economic development. Yes. Well, there's many ways to answer that question, and one is to to point to the fact that South Africa is, and that's not a, it's, it's an undeniable fact that South Africa is actually a fairly dry country, a large part of the country is desert uh, or semi-desert, and it's not possible to survive on more than 30% of South Africa's surface if you do not have the technology to dig a borehole. Um, so that's one way of looking at it, or, or dispelling this claim that that if you are white and you own land in South Africa, then by definition you, you must have stolen that land. The other thing is just that history is much more complicated than that. It's true that there were injustices with regard to land that happened under the apartheid system, where the, the idea was to create different homelands for different peoples. And, and in trying to achieve this, what the apartheid government did was to, to forcibly move people, to say, well, this area is going to be for the whites, and this area is going to be for, let's say, the Zulu people or the Khoza people. And so if you lived in the wrong area, they forcibly moved people. And you could say that that was an injustice and that has to be corrected. But that happened in particular areas in South Africa, and it, ha- it, was, uh, it, it impacted on particular communities that be- who could be traced back today. You can see who are the people who were affected. And, and that's why we say that, that we support the idea of restitution of land as opposed to redistribution. And the difference is restitution means we have to look at was there a community that was forcibly moved off their land, then they should either get the land back or they should be compensated if they haven't been compensated for that. Um, but redistribution is what the current, what the government is pushing for at the moment, and that's to say, it's basically to say if you are white and your own land, then by definition you are a criminal. And I've spoken with a representative of the Department of Land Reform about this, and I asked him some questions, and, and it sounds completely lunatic, but let me, let me explain to you briefly what he said to me. So, so they, they have this, this notion that if 80% of the land is not owned by black people, then it's a sign of injustice. And I then asked him, well, how, uh, what do they do if they, for example, give a, a farm to a black person and that black person then chooses to sell the property that was given to him in instinct of, of, of correcting this historic injustice? He then chooses to sell the farm and it's then bought by a white person. And the response by, by the, the, of the government official working for the Department of Land Reform is if a black person sells a farm that was given to him to a white person, then the correction of the injustice has been reversed. In other words, we then have to take that farm again uh, and give it to, to a black person again. Um, and so it's completely lunatic, but there's another twist, and that is that the aim is not really to hand out title deeds uh, or to, to convert property into private property. The, it's, it's in true Marxist terminology, the, the notion or the sentiment is that the government is the people. So th- when they say that we need to give the land to the people, what they are actually saying is 
we need to take the land and we need to vest it in the government. And then the government will control the land and decide what has to be done with the land. And that's what we see currently, currently happening in South Africa, where the amount of land, the South African government already controls more than a quarter of all land in South Africa. And the land that they are accumulating is just increasing. Uh, and the land that they are giving away uh, as title deeds to it happens very slowly in South Africa. Well, we've seen this movie before in Zimbabwe uh, where, um, uh, uh, remind me of the president's name. Um, uh, Robert Mugabe. Mugabe. Um, yeah. In order to hold on to power, uh, promised uh, the population that they mm. were going to take uh, the white farmer's land and redistribute it. Of course, it was redistributed to Mugabe's um, cronies. Uh, who had no exactly. knowledge or really intention of working the land and, and keeping it in production. And it prompted uh, widespread famines and, and economic collapse. Does the uh, South African government not understand that um, uh, that if they uh, go down that same path, they will have that same result? Well, the, the strange thing about these socialist movements is that there's always someone else to blame. I mean, you know, you've probably heard this thing that, you know, real socialism has never been tried. You have to keep doing this. But it failed in Russia, it failed in China, it failed in Vietnam, and in Cambodia, and in Cuba, and in Zimbabwe, and in North Korea. But we just need to try it one more time. Um, and there's always a scapegoat. There's always someone to blame. So, so the position of the South African government, or the ruling party at least, with regard to Zimbabwe, is that the reason why Zimbabwe has failed is because of America. And um, just last week, two weeks ago, the, the, the ruling party in South Africa sent a delegation to Venezuela, and they used the hashtag, hands off Venezuela, um, to show, as they describe it, I'm using their words, to show solidarity with President Maduro against the imperialist forces. And then they came back, and uh, this senior delegation came, went back to South Africa and said, what they saw there was what could happen to the country if the West intervenes. In other words, everything that Israel is simply because it's simply America's fault, and and therefore they, they they seem to think that if they do the same thing as Zimbabwe, although they have the caveat that we we are inspired by what happened in Zimbabwe, but we want to do it without violence. So they would say they would make claims like that, and then they seem to believe that that. What, what the only thing that went wrong was really the West intervening in some way, and we're going to do the same thing. And apparently now the West isn't going to intervene, and we're going to create. And, and this it might sound crazy, but I'm, I'm actually quoting the South African president, who said quite recently that he, he intends to create the Garden of Eden in South Africa. So that's typical Cold War socialist terminology. This creating the ultimate paradise uh, through socialist policy. That, that's where we are in South Africa at the moment. Well, I know uh, you're here tonight to um, explore the plight of um, the rise of Marxism and communism in South Africa, but I've got to say I see some parallels in the United States with the rise of uh, these uh, wild-eyed mm-hmm. cultural Marxists in the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party seems to have gone whole hog uh, for socialism and just a very thinly veiled form of Marxism itself. Uh, to tell you the truth, I was uh, surprised that it took South Africa 25 years uh, to uh, to start seizing white lands and and for these uh, these murders uh, 
uh, to really uh, these murders of um, the settlers and the farmers to really come to a head. Um, what do you? What is your best guess hmm. of the um, the uh, the prospects uh, for for South Africa as far as uh, uh, you know a peaceful and prosperous place to live for people of all races? Well, I think there's a few things to be said here. Yeah, firstly, uh, yes, we, we look to to the U.S. and we also see the U.S. as you know people use the term the leader of the free world, and we are quite concerned to see people in the U.S. also flirting with with these ideas that have, that have failed everywhere in the world where they have been tried. There's actually an, ex, an explanation as to why it took so many years for. Uh, the, the system to come crumbling down or to start crumbling. And that's because, uh, so during the apartheid system, there, there were a lot of sanctions on South Africa and and the market was very restricted. Then in 1994, the ANC came to power. They actually had what they described as a national a national democratic revolution. This is, I'm quoting from their policy document. And what it means, it's a two-phase revolution. So phase one is for the movement to present themselves as being liberal and as being in favor of free markets and, and trade and so forth in order to get the popular vote and also in order to get international support. And then, according to them, phase two of this revolution is once they obtain power, they must be, use the mechanisms of the state to further the goals of the revolution. So what happened in South Africa after 1994 was that, uh, and after the apartheid system ended, there was actually a freeing up of the economy. Um, and despite the fact that the party in power was very much a socialist party, the economy was suddenly opened up, and there was a lot of investment coming into South Africa. Uh, it's not as a result of good governance by, by the ANC. They just happened to be the party that presided over this system where the economy was freed up. And they actually thought it's because they were a good government, and Nelson Mandela was much more moderate than Thabo Mbeki, than his successor. Thabo Mbeki was much more moderate than his successor, Jacob Zuma. Um, and and so as as time passed, this wave of international approval and this, the, the, the economic growth as a result of the freeing up of the economy subsided. And now our government, people are starting to see that the government is actually failing. And the more people start to notice how they are failing, the more they need to find scapegoats. And yeah, and blame everyone else for what's happening. So, so in that sense, and I think here's an important point just to get to your question as to what are the prospects. I, I don't think the prospects are very good. There are people you always find optimists who say, no, we just need to, to hold on and things that everything's going gonna, gonna to turn out great. But the problem in South Africa, and, and this is where the U.S. comes in, is the, the U.S., and I believe it was the Clinton administration back then, actually played a very significant role in in creating the system that we currently have in South Africa, in, in, in pushing for the ANC to become the government and in pushing for uh, a, a, a liberal constitution and all of this. And it was, it was, it was uh, hailed as the most liberal constitution in the world and as the best constitution in the world. But what actually happened was the system that we currently have in South Africa gave and still gives tremendous power to the state president. Um, so, so the system, I don't think the system is sustainable. We, we have a ruling party that is a socialist movement, and, and they are given an, a tremendous amount of power by the Constitution. Now, if you have a peace-loving, uh, free market-loving president, that's good. But, 
But the problem is we have a president who who thinks socialism is a good idea, and this president has has tremendous authority to appoint people all around him. Uh, so we have checks and balances, for example, in the in the system to ensure that government does its job properly. But the people who are who who are appointed, you know, uh, to preside over these checks and balances are appointed by the president. So the president has to appoint the people who have to to ensure that he does his work. And now, of course, if you have a, a president that believes in government centralizing power in the government and in socialism, they simply appoint their friends or people who are political. Uh, part of the political elite. So, so I don't think the prospect is very good, and I would go as far as to say that that there's a moral duty on, on, on particularly the U.S., to at least speak out about what is happening in South Africa, given that, that the U.S. played a role in creating the system that we currently have in South Africa. That, that simply isn't a sustainable system. Well, it seems that the politicians, and uh, even including this administration, are very... Uh uh, at a loss uh, of, of what to do, if anything, about South Africa. Um, obviously, you've got an electorate there that is uh, predisposed uh, toward these, you know, Marxist uh, enticements. And um, yeah. and uh, I know that, uh, the, the, as I said, there's a, a media blackout here, it would seem, when I went searching for articles on this, that was very... Uh, very slim of uh, the coverage in in the uh, the main uh, you know organs of news. Uh, I guess I would ask: um, Has there been any uh, response from the rest of the international community, uh, including you know uh, the European countries where the where the original South African settlers uh, came from? Yes, actually, I don't think that much from from Europe itself. Um, but there has been some countries from which we've had a good response. Actually, one of the best responses we've had was last year when President Trump tweeted about the problem in South Africa, saying that he's concerned about what's happening in South Africa and that he gave Secretary of State Mike Pompeo instruction to investigate the matter. We've had quite an interesting response from our country, such as Australia. So there's a lot of, a lot of people who have left South Africa have actually immigrated to Australia to the extent that there's quite a South African constituency in Australia. And as a result of this, we've had some government leaders and politicians actively speaking out um, about what's happening in South Africa. We had the Minister of Home Affairs, uh, Peter Dutton, in Australia, saying that um, they they need to fast-track the visa process for people who want to leave South Africa to come to, to Australia. And that has resulted in quite some reaction from the South African government. Um, and, and I think what's also happening in Australia, and that's why we are in the U.S. now, is ordinary Australian citizens started talking about what's happening in South Africa more and more, to, to the extent that there were actually protest rallies in Perth and Sydney and, and, and so forth and Melbourne, where people were, were protesting against what is happening in South Africa. And the result of that was that lawmakers took serious notice of, of, of the problem. And uh, we are hoping, uh, at least for people in the U.S., to take note of what's happening in South Africa and to talk about it more. Because the more people talk about it, the more uh, lawmakers and, and government officials and people like the president and, and, and the secretary of state will take notice of, of the problem and will 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 be inclined to publicly talk about this and to put pressure on the South African government to actively do something against the problem.
Well, I've known uh, many uh, South Africaners, uh, South Africans that have come to the United States, and uh, they are productive and uh, intelligent, uh, smart people, good businessmen. Um, and I can think of a lot of countries in the world that would benefit greatly from uh, from the farmers' uh, skills, uh, including. Uh, South Africa itself, uh, who seems to not realize the valuable resource that they have. In the short time we've got left, I guess I would uh, I would want to ask, uh, you know, South Africa is uh, home to many uh, mining interests and, and other big industries. Uh, I guess one have, has the uh, Marxist government uh, there in South Africa made any uh, noises about uh, confiscation of these industries, and, uh, and what is the response to all of this unrest and economic, um, I don't want to call it collapse, but uh, economic uh, dysfunction that's rising in South Africa been from the international business community? Mm. Well, uh, I think one thing to stress here is the role that China is playing in terms of moving into South Africa. Oh, man. Uh, with multi-billion dollar projects, and, and of course this is welcomed by, by the South African government, uh, sort of a a response to people disinvesting in South Africa, and then the response is, oh yes, well that's it's, it's okay if people take the investments and leave because that just China will just move in and and pick up the ball. So so that plays a role, and and also there are quite a few you could call it state monopolies um, where it's we have companies being run by the government, and according to law you are not allowed to compete with them. And one such company is is the electricity supplier, uh, which is a, a government-run company, and it's completely failing to the extent that we now have what we call load shedding, that they aren't able to provide enough electricity for the country. So the other day, about a week or so ago, to give an example, we had load shedding, and I, at my house, we Arched. had on a Saturday... We are, running out of, we are running out of time, and I don't want to um, jam you up against sure. the clock. I want to make sure everybody knows how to get your book. It's on Amazon. Yeah, it's sure. called Kill the Boar, South Africa's uh, complicity, uh, the government complicity in South Africa's brutal farm murders. You're also uh, the CEO of an organization called AfriForum that you can find online at afriforum.co.za. Uh, and Ernst Rose, I want to thank you so much for being here and for bringing attention to this issue. Thank you very much, and thank you for giving my, me the opportunity. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details.